Now, let's stand together and read from Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. I'm actually going to pick it up at the end of verse 6, where we left it off last Sunday. He was going around the villages teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. In this text, we are at the beginning of a second half of uh, verse 6, and it was really the beginning of a new section of Mark's gospel, one that really is the same song and the second verse, if you will. It's the same song, second verse. This is more about Jesus, more about his authority and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It continues the themes that we have already seen in Mark's gospel this far. But the mission of the Messiah is expanding in its reach. So again, same song, second verse, just a little crescendo. It's going out and out further, the kingdom of God and its message. Now, some of the accounts that we'll see over the next several weeks include the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, there will be additional healings, and as we have come to expect, additional controversies. You see, the light is shining brighter and brighter, and the darkness is resisting it. Even the way this section in Mark chapter 6 begins and the way it's set up, you have the kingdom message being accepted as the disciples are sent out and their report in verse 30. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But you also have another sandwich. I don't know if you were here uh, for the sandwich sermon, but here's another one. Mark likes to make sandwiches of the story. And so we will see the rejection of the message of the kingdom in the story of John the Baptist. Look briefly, if you will, at verse 14. We read that King Herod heard about it. I guess that would be the expanding of the kingdom and Jesus' disciples going out and Jesus' name. It says, because Jesus' name had become well-known. There it is. Same song, second verse. Jesus and his authority and his kingdom is becoming well-known. And because he heard of it, what did Herod think had happened? He thought John the Baptist had come back from the dead to haunt him because that message of repentance was continuing to expand even after he had killed the messenger. See, you can, you can kill the messenger, but the message of the kingdom just keeps on going and going. 
So Mark makes this sandwich. He, he leaves the commissioning of the 12 in midair. Jesus sends him out, and we hear about what's going on, and then he just jumps to John the Baptist. And then if you look at verse 30, at the verse 30 it says, Then the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So, I don't know, he made that sandwich with the little heel. You know, when you get the loaf of bread, the part you... Nobody likes to make a sandwich with it. How many, how many of you actually like to make a sandwich with the heel? You know, that's your preferred, really? The gars are a little strange. I mean, I can see that. But, uh, but making the sandwich with the heel is what, he just has a little thin slice right there at the end of this section in Mark chapter 6, where he brings it back together and says the, the disciples came back and reported what had taken place. And so in between that, you have this message about John the Baptist. And that's where Pastor Allen will be bringing the message next week. You know, everybody's favorite Mother's Day passage. It's the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, of course, it is a Mother's Day passage because you have the little girl asking her mom what she wants, right? I mean, she's, she's just being a good... All right, sorry, we'll just leave that for next week. But uh, you do have that to look forward to next Sunday as we hear about John the Baptist and his message being rejected. But at any rate, we're here this week to see this sending out of the 12. And we consider, as this text was just read, the main idea is that as Jesus is sending out his 12 apostles, he is replicating his ministry and his message. He's calling people to repent in light of the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God, and he's doing so through the 12 that he sends. We'll also discover today as we unpack this text that Jesus' instructions to the 12 call for a life of simplicity depending on God's care that comes through the generous hospitality of those who welcome the apostles and their message. So let's, let's break this all apart and look first of all at the apostles' commissioning, we see that the apostles were commissioned to go with authority. Jesus commissioned the apostles to go with authority. Verse 7 says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now this is really the fulfillment of Jesus' call to the twelve. Way back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, listen to these phrases, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority over the demons. That was the call of the 12. He called 12 to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. And thus far, in Mark's gospel, all we have seen fulfilled is that the apostles were very faithfully with him. I don't know if you've noticed it in every text that we've read, but we see the apostles are always mentioned alongside of Jesus. They are with him. They are experiencing his ministry, seeing him in action, Hearing him teach, and as Jesus teaches others, 
he is teaching his disciples. The reality is, this concept is replete in all of the Bible. This concept of training others by them being with someone. I thought, for example, of Paul's um, requirements of deacons. He talks about them being uh, worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. But listen to this. He says in chapter 3 and verse 10 of 1 Timothy, they must also be tested first. And if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. At the church from which I came, we called them yoke fellows. They were yoked with someone and tested until the time when you could see how they were doing, how they were growing, and then they would be uh, ordained as deacons. Now, it's not quite as explicit in the, uh, the verbiage about elders, but I do think there is something about this uh, being seen uh, and being observed as an elder first. So, for example, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 6, he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. That is, an elder, if they're qualified, will be able to have been a Christian for a while and, and be alongside, be with others and serve with them. In June of this year at our family gathering, if the Lord will tarry, uh, the elders intend to nominate two men who have been with the other elders. They've been with us in a process of training and observation for between six months and one year. That process is something that we learned from another church. This reminds me of Bike Week in Daytona. This process is something we learned from in another church called the TRAIN process. And that's an acronym. You government people will come to expect that, right? T is for time with. That's what, that's what drew this connection, right? The apostles had been called to be with Jesus and to be sent and uh, to have the authority to cast out. But they, they spent time with him. And so that's one of the elements of this process that we've undergone with these men that we intend to nominate. The R is for reading. We've been reading theological works, doctrinal statements, scripture, and practical ministry books together. The A is for attend elders' meetings. Not every meeting, certainly not to vote, and sometimes uh, asked to leave when we get to sensitive discussions, but they've been with us. The I for involvement in ministry watching and observing as they teach and they disciple other people. And then the N, nominating, which again uh, will only come after a period of at least six months to a year. We want you to know when that family gathering comes, we are always open as elders to receiving nominations for qualified individuals. And uh, we as members as well have that right to nominate, but we want to hear from you. Uh, if you do have other nominees that would potentially go through this very same process. 
Now, I am quite sure that Jesus did not have an acronym for this process, okay? But I am sure that the time the apostles had spent with Jesus prepared them for being sent and commissioned by Jesus. We know this at the end of verse 7 also, this phrase that he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now, later in the text, we understand that exorcism of demons was not all that they did, right? They had preached repentance, they had healed people of sicknesses, but this authoritative sign was sent with them and accompanied their message of repentance. R.C. Sproul, he explains that, listen, the fundamental purpose of miracles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, was to authenticate the agents of God's word, the agents of God's revelation. You'll remember the Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and he said, teacher, we know you are sent from God because why? No one could do the signs that you do unless they were from God. God does not empower the demons to perform authentic miracles. They do lying. They do counterfeit works. But real miracles are restricted in the Bible to those on whom God places his seal of approval. We've been studying the book of Exodus each fall. We'll be back in Exodus this fall. And do you remember, Moses was very hesitant to go as God's spokesperson. And what did God do for him? He gave him a series of signs to authenticate his message, that he would be able to stick his hand in his cloak and it would become leprous, that he could put it back and it would be healed, that he would be able to throw down the staff and it would turn into a serpent and then pick it up again. These signs were sent as, as an agent, uh, as, a, as an accompanying um, of affirmation of God's agent of revelation. It gave them authority as they preached. And in a similar way, God had uniquely gave the apostles authority to cast out demons and heal the sick in order that the message of repentance they preached could be confirmed as an authentic message of the kingdom of God. Next, we see that not only had the apostles been commissioned with that authority to go alongside of it, they were cared for by God. The apostles were cared for by God. You might write out in the margins, uh, if you have a notebook with you, that they were cared for by God through the hospitality of other people. Jesus anticipated the hospitality of others as the means by which God would care for those who had been sent. In verses 8 through 11, we read these instructions. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff. No bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. And if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. There are various ways uh, that scholars have tried to put this account together with the other um, synoptic gospels, the 
Matthew and Luke and their account of Jesus sending the 12. And I think the point of it all, the, the sum total of it is this. Whether Jesus was saying, uh, take a staff, but not the shepherd's staff and kind of different types of staffs. Whether the, uh, the tunics was, do you acquire another tunic or only take the one that you have? The put together sum total of the statement is, you're going lean and you're going mean. When you go out, you're going with an expectation that God will care for you. You don't take money with you. You don't take bread with you. God will provide for you. This is the exact opposite of the way my wife packs for a trip. Can I get an amen from a brother out there? A hallelujah. Because I Thank you. Because I will tell my bride, listen, you do not need 13 pairs of shoes to choose from in your travel bag to go alongside of the decision that you plan to make on the Sunday we go to church when we're out of which of the three dresses you've brought with you you will actually wear. Can, can we not decide these things in advance? Do we need to have the whole uh, kit and caboodle, so to speak, with us? I texted Christina. She's serving in the nursery, so I'm not speaking behind her back today, all right? But I texted her. I said, can I talk about how you don't travel lightly? And she quickly LOL'd back and sent me a picture of our most recent trip uh, to Philadelphia. It was a three-day little jaunt to Philadelphia and back. And the people online, you're actually able to see the picture. We have one of those little luggage carts you get at the hotel, and it is full, full. In the middle of that luggage cart is one duffel bag about this big, and it's mine. And the whole thing, there are bags and bags and bags. And she said, make sure they know. I'm prepared for medical emergencies. I have a first aid kit, other medicines, and everything imaginable with me so that we are prepared for every circumstance. Okay, so you're getting the contrast here. By way of contrast, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus had given to the disciples. The instructions were to travel minimalistically. And by the way, when you see my bride, please tell her we'll need to travel more like the apostles for our one-month trip in July. We're going to be gone for like three weeks in July, and I can't imagine if three days was this much, my little trunk is not going to be able to fit it. So please be praying that we will travel more like the apostles when we go away in July. But the reality is these instructions were given so that the, the disciples, the apostles would know that God would care for them. And it indicates that Jesus is concerned about their motives, the motives of the apostles and the unity of those who would receive him in the Messiah's name. In other words, as one commentator put it, the human tendency would have been to accept the first offer you got of where to stay. But then, if another offer came along, you would accept that and kind of move up the social ladder, right? I don't know if some of you, do you do your calendar like that? I know some people that plan their calendar that way um, with no offense to our young adults. I've known some college students and other young adults. I know adults, so let's not just pin the young adults here. They put something on their calendar until, what? Something better comes along. And that's the way they kind of run their life. It's like, well, yeah, I'll be there. And then, oh, wait, there's something, something a little bit better than what I originally planned is here for me. So I'm just going to kind of 
oh, I'm unavailable and go with this plan. And that's what Jesus was trying to avoid in these disciples, that they would go and they would show favoritism to the ones who were wealthy. It's like, oh, I can stay here, but then I get an offer over there. Oh, I'll definitely move up the chain and stay at the five-star resort as opposed to the two- or three-star hotel. And this is the mindset that Jesus was trying for them to avoid because then it would also create a disunity amongst those who were receiving the message of the Messiah because these people would say, what are we? We're chopped liver over here? If the disciples had moved from side to side. So the bottom line is when Jesus sent his apostles out, he expected them to rely on God's provision and to care for them through other people. And listen, if a community was not welcoming to them, they were to show a sign of judgment on that village by shaking off the dust from their feet as they left it. As the CSB translated, this was a testimony against them. Some manuscripts even read that Jesus told them it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for those villages that had not received Jesus. Well, we pick back up at verse 12 and verse 13, where we see not only that the apostles were commissioned with God's authority and that the apostles were cared for by God, but we see that the apostles were communicating Christ's message. They were communicating Christ's message. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Now you might recall at the beginning of Mark's gospel that when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee and was going about proclaiming the good news of God, which according to Mark 1.15 was this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That was Christ's message of the kingdom which was merely a furtherance of the message of repentance that John the Baptist had preached, preparing the way for Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 4, going all the way back to the beginning of this gospel, John came baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it should be no surprise to us that the apostles, being commissioned by Christ, and sent with his authority are proclaiming Christ's message. It is the gospel, the good news of God. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God has come near. That may also be why Mark chose to tie in, at this point, the account of John the Baptist. Because that's precisely the connection Herod had made with the news about Jesus and the spread of the kingdom and signs and wonders that accompanied it. He thought it was John the Baptist coming back to haunt him. Kill the messenger, and the message keeps on spreading louder and stronger. Christ's message through the apostles was growing wider in its impact. And much like John in his day, the powers that be of our day will attempt to silence the message of the kingdom. But the message just keeps spreading. It just keeps growing louder and stronger. So there are considerations for us, and I want to leave 
some of that for uh, Pastor Allen next week about how the message continues to go forth even when the darkness tries to squash it. But this leads us to consideration today in light of this short account of the sending of the twelve of how we also are commissioned by God. Consider with me Christ's commission for us. Now I want to make a very clear distinction that this text is unique. In its context, this is about Christ sending the twelve. And the twelve were apostles. We need to understand that disciple and apostle is not synonymous. Disciple is a learner. An apostle is one who is commissioned by the master with the master's own authority and sent in the master's name. And that distinction is important for us because the New Testament tells us that the church is built on the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. They are the foundation of the church. The apostles have what is called apostolic authority. They have authority over the church for all ages. It's the authority given them uniquely by Jesus. When we study Mark's gospel, it has apostolic authority because it is the testimony of Peter. Eyewitness testimony of an apostle, a sent one. And the New Testament is built on the eyewitness testimony of those commissioned by God, sent by him. Jesus called Paul an apostle. Paul, when he writes to Rome, he says, Paul, an apostle of God. He was sent and commissioned by God to carry the message. So you can't do what modern people and modern critics of the Bible want to do and say, well, I only want what Jesus said. I don't like what Paul said. Listen, if you don't like what Paul said, you don't like what Jesus said. You have to understand that connection that the apostles' message is Christ's message. So we keep that distinction in mind, and we hold the apostolic office and unique authority in a very high view. But with that caveat being said, the contrast being plain, we, like the apostles, are sent as God's ambassadors to this world to proclaim the message of good news and repentance and belief. We have the same message today that began all the way when Christ proclaimed the good news in Galilee. The church today is far from perfect, but we are heirs of the Great Commission, which is for all of us to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe everything that he has commanded us. We are to tell unbelievers that God can take sinners and transform them into saints, that he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So as we remember the commission of the twelve, we must be reminded of the privilege we have of continuing Christ's mission even today. But then, as we've also seen in the special, special circumstances of the 12, that God cared for them uniquely along their way, 
I also suggest today that we pause and consider and reflect about how God cares for us. Yes, we understand there was a unique provision of the apostles, but there are principles that we can draw out from this text. I want to share with you three of them that one commentator just put so eloquently, and they are worthy of sharing. Uh, Mark Strauss, he writes this, quote, uh, These are the principles that we can legitimately glean from Jesus' instructions to the twelve. First of all, cultivate a simple lifestyle to avoid becoming enamored with the fleeting things of this world. What does Paul say? A soldier doesn't get entangled. We don't get caught up in the fleeting pleasures of this world. There is a danger that goes with the love of money and the accumulation of more and more and more which can distract us from God's purposes in this world. This is a challenge for us as Western believers where there's a constant temptation in our society to acquire more and more possessions and be distracted over the things that matter for eternity. Secondly, we should depend on God rather than our own talents and resources. The command for these apostles not to bring provisions required a constant trust in God for their next meal, their next place of lodging. Paul speaks similarly about contentment in the book of Philippians. He said, in every circumstance, I've learned to be content. Oh, I've had much and I've had little, but I've learned to be content. And the secret of that is I can do all things through Christ who who strengthens me. Take that in its context. He's saying I can live a life without the abundance of possessions by the strength of Christ in me. I can have and I cannot have. I will let these things, these fleeting pleasures of the world pass through my hands like sand and hang on to the only thing that will matter for eternity. So God will supply all your needs, church, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19. It's sometimes during those times of need that we experience the power and presence of God most fully when we learn to trust him and our faith is tested and we grow into spiritual maturity. Now, this does not mean, of course, that missionaries today should not plan carefully, that we should have no budget, and that we should raise all our financial support on the go, or that it's a sin for my wife to pack so much. That's not what this is saying. We have a balance here as elsewhere in Scripture, because Jesus also elsewhere encourages his followers to plan ahead, to count the cost, to act prudently with your resources, not to squander the talents God's given you. Yet in doing so, here's the key, as we harmonize the whole of Scripture, we should always, ultimately, ultimately, have our trust and confidence in God and not in our own ability to plan for every outcome. That is ultimately the trust and the dependence on God that we can take away as we consider God's care for us. The third thing is, as we consider his care, the command to stay in one home in each town is a reminder to us not to show partiality in Christian life. 
We should not show partiality in Christian life. We live in a day of celebrity culture. There is a strong tendency among even Christians to give special favor and attention to the wealthy, maybe professional athletes, celebrities, those with political influence. James warns against this in his writing, his letter. All people are equal in the body of Christ. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. We must remember not to show partiality as Christians as we consider how God cares for us. I thought those three things were very helpful and a good reminder in light of this text to share with you. But lastly, I want us to consider one last thing. In light of this text, I want us to consider Christ's message to everyone. The apostles were sent and they preached Christ's message. But that message is a message for everyone. The message of repentance was the very first thing out of John the Baptist's lips. It was the first thing out of Jesus' lips as he proclaimed good news to those in Galilee. It was the first thing out of the apostles' mouths as they were sent. And it should remind us that a critical component of gospel proclamation is the message of repentance. The gospel message is, it begins with the call to repent. Thomas Watson was a Puritan, and he wrote that repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly changed. A sinner humbled and changed. He tells of six ingredients for repentance. I want to share them with you briefly. For repentance, first you have the sight of sin. The sight of sin. When a person comes to clearly see their lifestyle as sinful. Listen, Christians, we cannot back down from calling that which is sin, sin. Without a clarity on what sin is, people will not repent because they can't see it. They are blinded, the Bible says, by the, um, by the God of this age. Unbelievers are blind to their sin. We must call people to repent. And the first thing that happens is they see they are sinners. You'll remember how the, uh, the prodigal son, he came to himself. He saw sin. Secondly, there is a sorrow for sin. You first see it, then you sorrow for it. Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sins. We must feel the nails of the cross in our soul as we sin. Repentance includes a godly grief, which is different from worldly grief that is only upset because the consequences came. Godly sorrow we are told, leads us to repentance. In addition to sight and sorrow, thirdly, Watson says we must confess sin. A sinner voluntarily passes judgment on themselves by sincerely admitting the specifics of their sin. We must confess sin. Fourthly, there is a shame for sin. A holy bashfulness is what 
Watson calls it. Ezra prayed this in Ezra 9, 6. He said, oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. The prodigal son, he was ashamed. He wanted to crawl back and ask to be a slave of his father. He was ashamed to be called a son. So there is a shame for sin. But then the fifth ingredient is a hatred of sin. We turn to hate sin when we love Jesus. We cannot tolerate sin in our lives any longer. And finally, and sixthly, in this progression, the ingredient of repentance is turning from sin and returning with our whole hearts to the Lord. Turning with our whole hearts to the Lord. Joel 2.12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Our students today were studying the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. When we repent and we turn to Jesus, we turn with our whole heart and we trust in Jesus and we produce works, we are told in Acts chapter 26, in keeping with our repentance. So we turn to God in faith of Jesus and what he has done for us and that faith and trust in him becomes our new reality, our new heartbeat and longing. Repentance is simultaneously a hatred of sin and a joy of awareness of God's love for us. Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing, listen, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you see the exchange? The exchange is a loving father who will welcome the prodigal home his kindness is meant to lead you to turn from sin and trust in Christ alone. Ultimately, we rejoice that Christ has accomplished everything for us. Everything, all that we need to secure our salvation and to secure our growth in holiness. We see ourselves then as an adopted child not a slave to sin. You see, the prodigal had to come to the place where he would accept the fact that he was a son and no longer a slave. And that's the picture in Romans 8. Do you not know that you're not a slave any longer to sin? We are slaves of God. We belong to him, body and soul. And our repentance leads us to joy in him. We are secure in him. We are adopted in him. We are free in Jesus Christ. The apostles were sent. And I close with Mark 6, 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. So unbeliever, I pray that you've been pricked by the grace of God to humble yourself, see your sin, sorrow for sin, confess it, Feel the shame that it brought upon Christ. Hate it. Turn completely from it and fly to Jesus, who is the only one who is able to secure for you 
any hope of salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. And believers, let us never forget the essential nature of the message of repentance in our evangelistic efforts. We are not commissioned to tickle ears. The gospel is good news, but it is especially good news when it is set appropriately against the backdrop of God's righteous wrath toward sin. We are not ultimately responsible for how people will respond. In fact, when Jesus commissioned the twelve, along with the response of Herod in the next section, we see that they don't always expect a glowing response. Your message might be met with, no thank you, you're not welcome here, in which case you've Proclaim the message, and you move along. Or your message might be met like John the Baptist. Do you understand the message we carry forward is a message that is unpopular, but it is the only message that saves. It's the only message that brings people into the kingdom of God brings people into restoration and reconciliation and restores our lives in him. So we share the message of repentance as we evangelize. And as people come to believe the good news of the kingdom of God, they will do so only with repentance and faith. So I pray that you will find that in your life, if you are here today and have never trusted in Jesus, repent and believe or as you go, that we will go carrying this message and never forgetting the importance of the call to repent.